Welcome to the Persisters Can Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lubowitz. Today's certified persister is Sonia Bell. Sonia grew up in Barrie, Ontario, and was introduced to politics by her conservative-leaning father and her experiences in the education system under Premier Mike Harris. She got involved as a volunteer supporting her local liberal candidate in Barrie, and later as a student at McGill University in Montreal. She began her career as a journalist, becoming the first hire at iPolitics, serving as a writer for This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and as a producer and researcher for the CBC. She made the transition to politics as a campaign writer for the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party before becoming a senior writer in the Premier's office. Sonia joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to write for the Premier, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. So I want to start at the beginning, which is, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Barrie, Ontario. It was probably, probably not until high school, um, maybe, maybe grade eight when, um, the Mike Harris, the Mike, Mike Harris right. years, um, started. Yep. And I started kind of hearing a different perspective from my teachers at school and that, um, yeah, then I started challenging my dad maybe a bit on, on some of his views. Well, and that's an interesting time in conservative politics in Ontario, but also nationwide as well. Like, you know, Joe Clark and Stockwell Day are very different politicians, different uh-huh. perspectives on things. Um, and Mike Harris is, of course, very different from Joe Clark as well. And, you know, we we saw the split that happened in that party with, you know, reform nationally, um, which turned into, was the party called crap at some point? The, yeah. I think it was, <laughs> and then, that. you know, eventually the, the modern current conservative party. So there was a lot of change over that time in general in that movement. Um, were you involved in politics at all growing up or, you know, like as a volunteer or anything like that? Yeah, so I did, um, I think I volunteered for my first campaign in 2006, um, again, in uh, in my hometown of Barrie for Eileen Carroll, um, a right, wonderful, right, right. wonderful local politician who became Barrie's first cabinet minister, uh, federal cabinet minister. Um, she was involved at all levels, of course, but um, that's, uh, that's who she was when I was making phone calls for her. Um, and when I was at, um, I did my undergrad at McGill, um, and I volunteered on a, on a couple of Montreal-based campaigns as well um, as part of the, the liberal McGill club. I was going to say, McGill is, you know, very well known for its uh, liberal connections there, uh, especially lately. <laughs> <laughs> we had some, yeah, we had some great um, speakers come through when I was there too. Uh, Nav Baines and Belinda Stronach and there was uh yeah it was an exciting time to to be getting involved in liberal politics. Belinda Stronach who had been uh my local MP when I lived in New Market and oh of course had, yeah had been conservative like your family and then turned liberal as well so mm-hmm, exactly <laughs> so um I want to talk about your career before politics because you were in and around politics volunteering, but you didn't dip your toe in right away. You actually went into a career in journalism instead. Um, Mm -hmm. You were the first hire at iPolitics, which I only learned recently. Uh, You were a writer for This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and you were a producer and researcher for the CBC. Um, You even won a Canadian Comedy Award for Best Writing in a TV Series, which I want to talk about. Can you talk a little bit about your career before politics and and what that looked like uh, in your life in journalism? Yeah, I know. I I kind of circled around um, 
politics for for quite a while. Obviously, I just you know it was always something that I kept coming back to in one form or another. And and I have to say, like it all, it's it's like a really eclectic background, but it really does. I'll make a pitch for why it really does all make sense <laughs> for, for coming together at the end for, uh, for you know, the, the role that I know we want to talk about today, which is speech writing for the premier. Um, obviously, uh, working on the, so I politics, I was on the Hill every day, became really well, pretty well acquainted with, with, how, with how government worked. Right. And also, you know, just staying on top of the news and developments and how things come together. Um, and of course, you know, learning the craft of, of, of writing. Um, and I developed a niche there in doing political satire for iPolitics. Um, every Friday we would put out like a funny infographic, um, reflecting on something that had happened that week. And that kind of became like a, 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 a niche that we developed and that I was really excited about, which, um, helped lead me to, uh, working on this hour has 22 minutes. Um, and again, it's like that was politics adjacent and so such an important training ground for things like learning how to work with a team because I was in a writer's room where there were about 10 of right, us right. Um, and, you know, collaborating on things and punching up each other's work and sitting in the studio audience every week and like hearing what resonated, oh. what, what connected with people. Um, learning to write for broadcast. So at iPolitics, I had been writing just for for print, you know, for online. And this was learning how to write for broadcast, which I think is a right. lot more important for a speech writer because that's the that's that's the, the presentation of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and the yeah, so all all a good training ground, learning how to learning how to connect, learning how to uh, work together. Um, I, I like the idea of, you know, the writer's room as a thing, like this is something we've seen on TV shows like, uh, I don't know, like 30 Rock or, or whatever, shows like that where there's a writer's room, there's a lot of nonsense going on in the writer's room, but, you mm -hmm. know, there's also a lot of work being done and just this idea of editing each other because the, the first thing I learned writing in politics, but just writing in general, um, in any kind of professional capacity is you have to be open to uh, critique and criticism yes. and editing. Uh, you cannot be precious about it. You cannot have an ego about it. Like that is just part of the writing process. And the idea of a writer's room is like that on steroids, of course, <laughs> because everybody is just doing that together. Because at the end of the day, it's the final product that matters. It's not, you know, whose pen was on it the whole way through or anything like that. Exactly. Um, and it won't be your pen on it the whole way through. And then, no, even exactly. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, and then once, you know, all, uh, whoever, five of you, um, have, have got this thing, um, you know, on paper out the door and you're so proud of it, the, the speaker is still going to, you know, isn't going to right, read it exactly. word for word, or if they do read it word for word, honestly, it's not as good. Like you as the writer might be really proud that they read it word for word, but they need to lift it off the page. They need to throw some sentences around. Like that's where the magic right comes from it's it's really funny because i'm thinking of you know a very famous political show is the west wing and a very mm -hmm. famous writer of that show is aaron sorkin who very famously does not allow anyone to edit or words, <laughs> including yeah. the actors it has to be delivered as written only that way no ad-libbing no playing around in, a, in you know a fun take at the end um and it's just it's just so opposite of what a normal writer's room is and i can imagine on the satire side and on the comedy side, like that's so important because you need to be bouncing off of each other's energy to create these really great ideas. Um, 
I, I want you to talk about the parody you wrote um, because I don't I don't know if you knew the like obviously there was a lot of um, views of that of that piece listens to that piece but like in I was at the time in the Ontario Liberal Party office and we listened to that thing on loop like we loved it Did you <laughs> we, really? constantly, we constantly listened to it because it was so funny and also so the parody was based on the song by Lord um, which was really big at the time yes, and so we, we had already been you know listening to the song Royals all the time um, and then this parody came out that you know as liberals we love because it was making fun of Tories um, even if they were I think it was it was directed at the federal Tories um, but we very much enjoyed that it was just very catchy and, and just can you talk about the idea of how to write a parody because you know as Canadians we think of uh, Weird Al as the as the master of parody but there is there's a lot that goes into it. can you talk about how that came about and why you think it was so successful yeah uh well I'm so excited I didn't know that you uh that you had listened to it on loop that's really cool oh yeah very oh yeah it was very popular <laughs> um yes we called it Tories by board of course based on uh Royals by Lord and yeah the way that that came together is again um you know uh, uh, illustrative of the of the writers room process, where it was the show's producer who, um, like, just uh, who, as I remember, just kind of like walked in one day and was like, "I got it, bored, uh, Tories," and like we all understood exactly what he was what he was saying, and he um, a point he pointed out two of us and was was like uh, um, Mike Allison and myself and was like, uh, "Take this." take this on. Um, and Mike is a pretty talented musician. So he was kind of playing around on the guitar with it. And I took on the research element of it, which I'm a big, you know, I, I think that <laughs> I, that's, for me, um, you know, that's, if I ever have writer's block, it's because I haven't done enough research. Yeah. Um, so I just started writing down, um, this was, oh, sorry, I didn't get the context for this is the Senate scandal. Um, this is right. like the glory years of political satire, in my opinion, because once 2016 hit and Trump was elected, there was uh, satire became whole very, vibe, yeah. very <laughs> difficult uh, to write. It, yeah, it was it was really hard to to exaggerate. Um, so with the, yeah, so this was the, the like uh, Mike Duffy, Pamela Wallen. Um, so just started writing down everything that we were, we could remember about um, you know the Senate scandal. Like okay, uh, Pamela Wallen, she went to Putacana, like this, and 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 just started getting out lots of um, lots of words and phrases that we could try to that we could that that we could try to piece together. So that's how that's how we put the song together. Is that is that what you won the comedy award for? Was it related to that, or was that like a season's work, or or what was that? Yeah, it was a particular episode, um, and I think my contribution on that episode had been, if I'm remembering right, um, had been an Amazing Race parody where um, where I had <laughs> Pamela Wallen and Mike Duffy sending in their audition tape for the Amazing Race. Um, <laughs> Amazing Race Canada. So we again just combining kind of the two biggest news stories of the week, which was Senate scandal stuff and uh, Amazing Race Canada auditions. Um, that's <laughs> yeah. So we, so it was a the group of us who worked on that episode that won um, that won the award. I always find it interesting when people cover politics either as journalists or also in your case wearing both hats as somebody doing parody of it. Is it hard to get involved in politics or stay involved in politics mm. after that when you've been making fun of it, see how ridiculous it can be mm. um, and all those sorts of things? Given that experience, how did you make the leap sort of into p paid political work after that? I did 
like you're describing kind of go through a few different phases like in um when i was covering politics there were times when i felt so exasperated that my only outlet was satire and then (laughs) yeah and then once i was on the uh, satirical side um i loved it um had we had so much fun together in halifax but eventually was like maybe i want to do something maybe i want to get involved um maybe making fun of this every week is um not for me so Fesh agreed the speech writing firm. I had done some freelance work for them before and they approached me and said the Kathleen Wynne campaign um, is going to be looking for a writer on the campaign in 2014. Um, at that time, we didn't know for sure if there was going to be an election or not. It was depending on whether the right. budget. Yes, because uh, it was a minority passed. at the time. Exactly. Um, so we were, it was all um, kind of up to Andrea Horvath and we didn't know what, where it was going to go. Um, but I jumped at the chance. I was like, I actually, Kathleen Wynne is my, like the number one person in the country that I would be interested in taking right. on um, speeches for. She, were you at the liberal convention, like the leadership convention where she gave her, her big speech? Yeah. So I was, I was actually on what we call a uh, team neutral at the time running okay. the convention. And I was the one who got to, you know, hit send on the results and things like that out to um, the public. And so I, this was at the old uh, Maple Leaf Gardens yeah. and it was a big arena. And there was basically, I was literally in the referee's box, um, which was a great mm. view because I couldn't get crushed by the crowds. But I remember watching that speech and just going, oh my God. <laughs> It was yeah. the best speech I'd ever heard in politics, probably still the case now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was in the room too for, um, in my journalistic capacity with, um, with iPolitics and was, right, right. Uh, yeah, similarly blown away. I mean, just as a queer woman, I was really, right, yeah. I had always been excited about the fact that she was running and then to see her speech and how she took And it was such a core to, part of the speech. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, um, about, yeah, like, you know, they say let's let's talk about the elephant in the room um and i was so impressed um that basically as soon as i got the phone call saying they're going to be looking for someone i was like well this is my chance like if this yeah. is this is when this is my my chance to to leap and try to you know do something from the from the other side yeah tried out a few speeches um in the lead up to the, the to the to the crucial budget vote um and then when the government did fall um i basically got on a train to toronto that afternoon <laughs> it was it was pretty wild <laughs> so were you on the bus with her in 2014 then i was yep yep traveled right. the whole province we were up in thunder bay and down in in Windsor, which is actually where my wife and I were living at the time, uh, Toronto, no, Ottawa. Had you been on a media bus before then, or was this really your first sort of cross province, you know, campaign bus tour that you had yeah, done? It was, um, yeah, I politics at the time that I was working there was a pretty, um, lean still shop, a pretty yeah. small shop, uh, lean shop. We, we would go out to campaign stops. Um, and I think I travel, I, I went on like a, a short, um, train ride with Elizabeth May, um but uh there was no yeah there was no um 40-day campaign we would just go out for small stints so what was that experience like like we we'll probably talk about this later as well with uh later campaigns but you know i'm assuming this was your first real time spending time with with kathleen when the leader um and being on the bus with her team 
Um, was that sort of a culture shock, having been in the journalistic side and then suddenly being thrown into the political side um, at such a high level and, and, you know, intense pressure? It was very intense. It was very intense. So, yeah, I mean, it was a lot to get um, to get thrown into and to understand the way things were were working, you know, just the mechanics of, OK, I've written this. Who needs to sign off on it? Who needs to look at it? But what I really liked about it from the get go was the team atmosphere that really appealed to me, um, as opposed to in journalism, where especially on the Hill, like you're you're in competition with with um, right. your, the people that you're working with with whether the you know the other media outlets there's a lot of competition whereas I really felt um jumping into this campaign that it was all hands on deck and we were all there to work together so I loved that that first time working with Kathleen Wynn I was immediately like yes this is I felt great about it um because she was even smarter than I would have <laughs> than, yeah. than, than yeah. I had realized. Like I would go in, I would like go to the back of the bus to brief her on something. And like, she knew more than was in the briefing binder already. Like I, I had, um, I had, I had nothing more to give her. She's, <laughs> she was so on top of, of everything and um, seeing her speak um, and connecting with crowds. It was, it was, it was like, just a throw. She's a really impressive figure because, you know, this is a woman who's at this point <clears throat> in her 60s. She's a grandmother. Um, mm -hmm. She's doing seven events a day. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, she knows more about everything than everybody. Um, mm -hmm. She's she had been a minister in a number of different ministries and, you know, had taken every role very seriously when she was, you know, the Minister for Municipal Affairs, she had, you know, Ontario has 444 municipalities, she made sure that she knew about all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that came in real handy as Premier, like she just knew the people and the places that she was going to. And mm -hmm. I think that played a big part in why she was elected as, you know, the first female and the first uh, gay Premier of Ontario, because at that point, she had been, you know, chosen by the party into that position. But this time fully by the people. Um, it was really historic. And when you think that there was already three terms of liberals prior to that, that's a huge achievement to be able to reset things that way and become leader. So as she had that victory, it was a majority victory, um, that meant, you know, the next four years of liberal government, which meant that you now had a choice about what you wanted to do next. And you became the senior writer uh, in the office of the Premier of Ontario. On any given day in that role, you know, you could be writing a speech, a news release, an op-ed, social media post, whatever it is, there's a whole gamut of things to write. Um, can you talk about what your day-to-day -day sort of looked like in that role? The speech writing team, um, there were about, uh, it, would, it would fluctuate a little bit, um, but there were four of us writers and we would, we reported to the director of strategic management. Uh, it was a really well-oiled machine. Um, we would have daily writers meetings, um, sit down, look at the calendar, be like, uh, here's what's coming up. Here's who's in charge of it. Um, here's when we need to see the rough draft. Here's who will edit it. Um, and it was all very, uh, you could really plan your your week by that unless of course there was a last minute event um, added but uh but it was it Which was a really well, case, yeah. <laughs> but it was it really was a well well-oiled machine um 
So I think that's something that people don't necessarily understand about writing because it's seen as this like creative thing where you're just sort of off in space on your own, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's a very organized mechanical process where you have to be weighing in and, and, and cutting into the right moments where people are, you know, processing things. So it's like, yeah, there's a draft, but then who has to see it? Who has to edit it? You know, what are the approvals for that? Like it's, it's an organized machine. Yes. And you have to, and like the, the level of coordination that goes into um, every product. So we would, obviously we were interacting with each other all the time, but there's, there's a few other key, key players to, to talk about. So um, there's the policy team. So if you're writing something about, um, uh, you know, if if you're going to speak to the nurses association, RNO, um, you have to speak to the, the, um, person who the policy advisor on healthcare and hear what have the what have you been hearing um, from your stakeholders there lately um, what what right. needs to be talked about um, how are they feeling about you know this bill or how what are their major issues you need to you need to hear that from them um, once you've got something um, in the works um, you also want to talk to the to the tour team learn about what's happening on the ground what kind of um, setup there's going to be like does there are they expecting there to be um, like a, a you know a, a slideshow with it um, are we putting together a deck are we um, are we adding a Q&A at the end like that kind of that kind of thing about the event itself um, you also need right. to coordinate with the with cabinet office um, so on the like on the bureaucracy side and you'll send them the speech and they will fact check it for you and they will put together a backgrounder and they'll probably coordinate with you on the media release if you're putting out any sort of policy announcement. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's not you alone in a room, um, you know, with your thoughts. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about you've mentioned a number of different products there and we call them products in government. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about, you know, the difference between obviously people know what a speech is, but can you talk about the difference between, say, a backgrounder, a Q&A, um, a media release? What do each of these different things look like and, and what do they need to contain? Yeah, so a media release um, is going to be about one page with the highlights of a new policy announcement. So that's something that uh, obviously from the title uh, is going to go out to the media, to the journalists (laughs) to be like, here, this is how, this is this thing that we're doing. It might contain some quotes so that they can really easily um, throw the quotes in there. And it might contain, um, you know, any, um, uh, you know, key information about like when the new policy is going to start um, and why we're doing it. And a backgrounder um, would be a much longer, thing um so if you are that that would you wouldn't do a backgrounder every time for everything um, yeah but um but there might be oh maybe, anytime you're doing anything on climate there's going to be a yep. huge backgrounder yep yep that's a yeah that's a great example <laughs> <laughs> so if the premier is going to be doing a media avail you would prepare a Q&A and that would be anticipating the questions that she might get from the reporters and providing suggested answers. Um, and that was um, where my journalistic background would come in handy really because helpful, I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I, I usually had a pretty good idea of some of the, you know, the the holes that they might try to try to poke in what we were saying or some, um, yeah, some comparisons that they would try to make and and try to get ahead of that by giving her a suggested uh, Q&A. And would you work with the Premier's um, issues management team on, on a QA? Would they, would they sort yes. of weigh into what they think is yeah. going to come up? 
yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great uh, great point. Um, that we we did go back and forth with them quite a bit, particularly during um, elections. Um, but uh, yes, they would also um, be invaluable um, when we were doing a more hot topic um, event. So you were working on the writers team, and you were talking about how you know it's about four people. Can you talk about how big big the broader premier's office is because there is a lot of people who work there we've sort of you know mm -hmm. briefly mentioned policy and we've mentioned the issue shop and all that but how big is this operation that you're working within yeah yeah and the tour shop um and then there are the um uh like the comms to help the comms plan events yeah. Uh, yeah comms planners yes and then of course you know the people that you're that you like that the, that you're reporting to so, oh man, I'm going to throw out a figure. What are, are there, are there like 40 to 50 people um, that, that I would work think, in the yeah. office? I think that's, I think that's about right. Um, they don't even also... work in all the same building because there's so no, many of them. <laughs> no, no. On our floor, we had the comms planners, um, the policy planners. Um, oh, we also had the correspondence team. Um, that, yes, uh, huge. Yes. So the correspondence team would obviously be answering any um kind of communications that would be coming in letters from, you know, the general yeah. public, Emails. Uh, but also organizations as well. Like you mentioned mm -hmm. RNAO earlier. So like frequently organizations will write in a letter about an issue of concern, a piece of legislation, something like that. So there's an entire unit just doing correspondence. There's, you know, your team that was doing um, speech writing and related products. There's the comms mm -hmm. planners who are doing, you know, planning out things at large, deciding what might be a good announceable when all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, and this entire office, which is massive, um, has to, you know, engage with cabinet office and then also with ministries. Can you talk about that sort of relationship? Because cabinet office is the the uh, nonpartisan side that supports mm -hmm. Premier's office and the rest of government as well. What were your interactions like with them? Yeah, we, we would meet with them um, every week and similarly go over the calendar and they would they were uh, um, also a very well-oiled machine they stick around no matter who the premier is um and so they know they know the lay of the land um they look at the calendar and they're like okay so i see this event you're probably going to want um a qa you're probably going to want a media release and you know are you going to want a backgrounder and they knew so they knew our schedule uh, we coordinated very closely on the schedule and would um we would be sending products um back and forth quite a bit we would weigh in on anything they wrote they would weigh in on anything that we wrote uh, definitely their their fact checking um i found super helpful especially coming from the media world where you know cuts 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 have meant that uh fact checking um is uh right, few and yeah. far. <laughs> uh it was it was amazing to me that i could that i could send down um you know, a thousand word speech and they would like bang, 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 send it back up to me with, um, you know, w with some suggestions about like, well, actually you probably want to say it this way. Oh, you know, this isn't, uh, you got the date wrong here. Like it was, it was super helpful. Yeah. I think people, you know, on the outside don't necessarily understand the importance of the bureaucracy and, and how much work that they do. You know, I've, I've come at it from the angle of working in a ministry and there's always a deputy minister's office who helps support, um, what is going on, whether it's comms policy, whatever it is. Um, 
um, you know, some offices, they might do the initial draft, some you might do it and then they fact check or whatever mm -hmm. the arrangement mm -hmm. is, but they are that, that permanent structure of people who have a lot of expertise and support you as you go on. And then we are the, the political layer that comes in and is trying to achieve the political objectives of the current uh, government. So there is, you know, a difference there and there's an importance for both of them. And there's a lot of collaboration um, to make sure that we're, you know, doing good things for the people of Ontario. I want to talk about now, uh, you know, what are some of the specific skills that you need as a writer? We, we talked about, um, you know, organization actually being very crucial, but what are some of the other skills that you need uh, to hold that kind of role? I really think research the, uh, is, it was, yes. was crucial. Um, you know, you, you come into uh, the role and you might not know a lot about uh, rural issues, but you have to write a speech um, for like right. you know the <laughs> for you the. You need to sound uh, like an expert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, for you know if you're addressing rural Ontario uh, municipal association, there's lots of so you you don't know what you're going to get assigned, and you have to become an expert in everything. So research. Um, interpersonal skills, because as we've just been discussing, um, you are going to be working with lots of different branches of the government in order to, in order to put together, you know, the most um, professional, comprehensive um, yeah. products. And you can't, you can't just be like Toby Ziegler, like yelling at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is some interpersonal relationships to build there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think knowing the difference between, you know, writing for the page and writing for broadcast. So when I was learning how to, how to write speeches, like the first thing that I did when I became like curious about the process was I would watch speeches and I would transcribe them and be like, oh, you know, like in my own writing, I write really say long sentences, but now yes, I'm yes. seeing as I transcribe this, that like, it, like it has to be short and punchy. I mean, you can have a variety, but like just understanding the rhythm of a, of a speech compared to how you might normally write as a journalist or, um, you know, just if you like to, you know, write in a diary, it's going to, it's going to be different when you're, when you're writing for, for, for broadcasts like that. And a really up-to-date understanding of news and current affairs. Um, right. I think that, yeah, my news background <laughs> helped with that. Um, but yeah, really, we would have CP24 playing in the premier's office um, because you just needed to know. Yeah. yeah, you needed to know what was going on. You needed to know how things were being perceived. You needed to know how to respond to it because there's that strategic element um, to to your writing. For sure, yeah. Um, like you're not writing into a vacuum. Again, you're not sitting in this room alone just writing for yourself. Like there's an environment you. that you're writing for. Yeah, yeah. And then I think the last thing I'd say is like you have to believe in the cause. Um, you know, the, it helps for sure. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> um, like the the work is it's it's pretty grueling, especially during a campaign. Yeah, you have to believe in the cause um, in order to you know write your best and just in order to to keep up with the pace. Um, but I found you know if you're working on something like OHIP Plus, uh, which was our program to provide. Um, drugs uh free prescription drugs for for kids um it's you know i found it very easy to stay motivated because i really yeah. believed in what we were doing i think i'm thinking back to you know the things that i got to write about in government and i i would have to say um 
probably the two that really I connected with the most were anything on homelessness and then anything on uh, rent control as another way to make sure people do not become homeless. Mm. Um, yeah, when you feel the the personal connection to the issue because it's something you're passionate about, it makes a huge difference with uh, what comes out on the page. I want to talk about, um, you know, basically the most high profile writing assignment you can get as a writer in politics. Campaign speeches are, you know, more or less the same thing. You're sort of ripping off a different theme every day. But the one really big speech that comes out when you're in government is the speech from the throne. It's a speech that opens, you know, every new session of the legislature. Um, the lieutenant uh, governor is the one who reads it out. It's not actually read out by a politician. Um, but it lays out the government's priorities for the time that they're going to be in office. It's basically the blueprint from which everything else is drawn for the the governing cycle. Um, you know, the budget speech is, is really big as well, and that's something the finance minister gets to give, but the speech from the throne is the thing that everything else comes from. Can you talk about what it was like working on the speech from the throne and, you know, Again, you've been talking about broadcasts. What is involved taking something from a blank page to, you know, a televised speech? Oh, that was a great. I, I loved working on that speech. Um, it was it was hectic. Um, I had to have the first draft uh, done in I think forty eight hours, and this is a long speech. Like Oof. this is this is a, this this speech is about I think it, it it's about twenty five minutes. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely that's like thousands and thousands of words. <laughs> you're into the double digits of pages for sure yeah it was really satisfying honestly it was really satisfying to write it kind of felt like so this was kind of, this um the one that i wrote uh was in was for march 2018 um right so it was an it was an election type throne speech right like, it was. was really important it was it was and we were it, it felt to me it kind of felt to me like you know like in university um how you like prep for a final exam um and then if you have prepped well enough it's actually really satisfying to write that final exam right, um, right. so I, that's the way i felt about the speech from the throne because we had been working for years on all of these um, policies that i felt were really important um, and we had this narrative um, about care and opportunity and the ontario that um, we thought uh, the Ontario that we had a vision for. At the time I sat down to write this speech over the course of 48 hours, I felt like it was just all the knowledge of the of the past few years um, that, that I just needed to put it down in paper. Uh, I had, like I said, I had about 48 hours. I probably spent the first half of it um, doing research. Like I looked at um, town hall transcripts. The premier had been doing a, a big town hall tour in different places in Ontario. Um, I looked at the transcripts and got a feel for the people that she had been talking to most recently and the right. issues that they had raised. I tried to bring together a story. I'm really big on uh, on anecdotes. A lot of speechwriters are um, right. as a way of as a way of telling the story. Yeah, so probably half my time was research and half of it was writing. And then, of course, it goes through goes through qu quite a long process um, that ends with getting the premier's sign off. So where, was there was there anyone else sort of, you know, before you were starting, were they like, here's a list of things that needs to go in here? Was that sort of the genesis of it? Or were you really just like, let me think about what we have done over the last few years? We definitely would have had a strategic conversation um, at the at the outset. Um, that's pretty typical for a for a big speech to be like, what are our aims here? Um, 
but yeah, I really did have, um, you know, some free reign um, in those early stages uh, to, to put my, yeah, to put my ideas together. But yes, a lot of major speeches would start out with like a broader conversation about, about the strategic goals um, with our, with our director. So the, the speech from the throne is a, is a bit of a different voice because it's the voice of the, the government at large, which mm -hmm. obviously has tones of the leader of that government. Um, but I'm wondering if you can talk about how you sort of get into the voice of the person that you're writing for. I remember writing some content years ago, I think it was around the 2014 election, and I was writing for David Peterson, who at that point, I don't think I had met yet, um, had never worked for. I was, you mm -hmm. know, an infant when he was in government. Mm -hmm. And the way I had sort of gotten very quickly into his voice, because I had about an hour hour to do this was I went and watched an old speech on YouTube yeah. and I got a sense of his cadence and his speech patterns and word choice and yeah. then just dove into it from there. How do you get into someone's voice that you're writing for, especially on, you know, sort of a quick turnaround? Uh, yeah. 100% YouTube is your friend. Um, former, <laughs> yeah, former speeches. Um, of course, if you if you're working with someone more long term, you get to know their anecdotes. Um, we would have weekly, maybe they were biweekly um, meetings with the premier, and it was to go over speeches that we had already written um, or that were in progress, and to get her feedback on them. And we would often try to use that opportunity to prompt her for you know, okay, um, when you were um, out in uh, Sarnia this week, what happened? Um, did you did you meet anyone interesting that we should try to incorporate into a future speech um, or going you know back further like oh you've talked a little bit about uh, this summer job that you had um, can you can you tell us more about like that those that that team period for you can you tell us more about like uh, your your parents we would try to uh, to build up our own um, knowledge of the of, of her and her background um and whether that was you know deep past or whether it was just the last week because you never know when you're going to be working on something um where an anecdote like that will come in handy or where you to, to have context um for for something that she's that she's saying or something that she's announcing and then i guess the other big piece is is learning as you go right so you've written the speech um you and then you you watch how she actually delivers it and you realize oh she you know she changed this part she doesn't like the way that uh like she tells this story differently and and adapting as you go once you see what she does with your existing work so you know from this period we had the the speech from the throne uh we were having you know a concrete end to that period of government because there was a scheduled election coming up yeah. in may of 2018 and you joined the writer's room of uh the campaign so we were you know in a building downtown uh, we were the lucky few because we were writing we actually got a room with a door can you talk about what that experience was like this was also a campaign i, I want to sort of you know couch it this way this was a campaign where the leader was in her second full campaign she was very very experienced and she wasn't really reading from speeches anymore it was essentially you know a stump speech with some stuff added in for the particulars of the day can you talk about writing in that sort of environment where you're not writing you know a full speech where the exact words are going to be spoken you're sort of giving an idea to the speaker yeah that's right so you write it more um bullet point and that that was becoming true um in the kind of in the late stages of the government anyway, that she was requesting um, 
products that were that just gave her more of an outline rather than a full speech um, again she just so we yeah we ended up um, designing a few different kinds of, of products um, so you know just like a, a headline with some bullet notes um, sometimes we would even just give her, um, I think we called them like a, a cover. Cover notes? Cover note. Um, I think it's cover note. <laughs> that's it. Oh, that was it. Cover notes. Where <laughs> uh, we would say, you know, premiere, like, this is where you're going to speak. Like, here are, here are like six main points um, to include in when you give your remarks. And it would be as, it, it could be as brief as that. Working on the central campaign too, we also had quite a bit of, um, we would produce products um, for other other candidates. Um, so there was a lot of what you're talking about, you know, just uh, quickly trying to learn someone's um, style because you might be um, sending, yeah, you might be sending products out um, to, to different parts of the campaign. How much time do you have to write a speech at a campaign? Like obviously in Premier's office, it's very tight and busy all the time, but a campaign is on a bit of steroids and, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, like, okay, this is the speech this morning, have it to me by mm -hmm. two kind of thing. Like, is that what it looked like? <laughs> Yeah, it <laughs> definitely. Um, the The good thing about a campaign is that you really do have like one clear message of the day. Um, you're not going into the same amount of technical detail that you would have done um, in the in the premier's office for you know for a, uh, for an announcement. Um, but yes, it is your interpersonal skills uh, really come in handy because you might literally have to run down the hall and be like, I understand the premier is giving a speech at 2 p.m. Can someone tell me what it's supposed to be about? Um, and then run back to, <laughs> run back to your office uh, to, try to, to try to type something out. Uh, and then at 12 p.m., you know, the topic, uh, topic might change. So it was, it, it's, very, it's very fast, um, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot of repetition. So that I, I think is, is what saves you. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, unplanned events that weigh into the campaign, because when something, you know, happens out of the blue in government, there's a bit of time to respond. Uh, one of the speeches I did for Kathleen Wynne during the campaign was on the steel tariffs that Trump suddenly introduced right in the middle of her yeah, yeah. campaign. And we had almost no time to respond to that. Were there other instances that you had to work on during the campaign that was, you know, something that came out of the blue? The way that I remember um, uh, <laughs> the most pivots happening um, was was in response to uh, to Doug Ford, who was um, the right. at the time um, he was the um, opposition leader. He was leading the PCs, and um, there was um, a number of times where he said something um, that we then had to uh, very quickly change a speech to respond to. So um, one of the ones I remember was um, the the green belt. Um, he made an announcement, um, or maybe it was an offhand remark. I can't say for sure um, about um, that was that was going to be about um, like developing the green belt, and we had to put together um, a speech incredibly quickly. Um, responding to re responding to the remarks that had come out and coming up with you know some some uh, lines that would be memorable. I think we had something about like you know making like a like a he was going to turn the green belt into like a piece of Swiss cheese. Um, so trying to 
um, like all hands, all hands on deck being like, um, how de deciding, um, how to, how to respond to this and putting out all the products, right? Because it's not just a speech. Um, you probably want to have a, a media release about it. Um, right. you might want to have, um, a, a background or about it to talk about the importance of the green belt. So there was, um, a lot of pivoting in, in response to, um, you know, to what the opposition does and, um trying to yeah all hands on deck to put out a really like fulsome response and again much like in premier's office you know that would involve policy weighing in the issues team weighing in mm -hmm. there's in in a campaign there's an entire war room that functions as the issues team and they're just on top of things at all times they're usually the ones stirring up those kinds of things and including yep. those comments so that you can respond to um yep. and you know obviously have a big role to play in that there's also there's also i think a little the approvals process thankfully is a little flatter during a campaign because yes. you have one everybody in the same building which is helpful uh, mm -hmm. but two you know there's a lot less people involved and it's just you know we got to get this out do we have the key sign-offs great go ahead can you talk about sort of the interactions you'd have um you know in sort of getting a bunch of products for an announcement over the line yeah so this is where um uh, translation I found was really helpful because oh, there really yes. was a <laughs> there really was a drop dead deadline because you know the you couldn't ask the translator um, you had to give the translator enough time you'd, you'd finish you'd finish a product probably in the context of a campaign there would be several um, you know graphs or several um, lines that had already been approved so you might send it along and be like this is the new top um, to the to the speech does it look okay you would get the sign off um and send it on to translation and if you were trying out a new attack line you would have to send that off to the uh, to the issues management team so you might in the context of a campaign um divvy things up a bit um be like you need to look at this you need to look at this like okay the correct people have looked at the correct part of the product the correct part of the speech um and we have this drop deadline uh because we have uh the the translators uh, are going to need are going to need a minute yeah, my favorite was always, uh, you know, when I worked at the party office, I dealt with translators a lot. So I always, you know, had a bit of a, a heart for them and, and we carved out space for them. And the mm -hmm. worst scenario was always, oh, we've translated the whole thing. And then someone's changed something at very much the 11th hour. And can you go retranslate just this line um, and then try and stitch that back in as an yep. amplifone into the speech? Always love yep. that. That's sort of situation. <laughs> um, okay, so the, the campaign uh, ended on uh, June 2nd and did not go well for the liberals. Um, we were kicked out of power. Um, and that basically meant everyone, you know, in Premier's office and the ministries like myself, everyone who had been on the political side was now looking for a job that was about 400 uh, political staffers. The next thing that you ended up doing was you took, you know, this high level experience you had writing for executive and you became the senior manager for content delivery at RBC, Royal Bank of Canada. How did your time in politics prepare you for, you know, your job writing for a major Canadian bank? Because I think a lot of people go into politics, they understand that it's usually a temporary role and that they will need to have marketable skills once they leave that that place. So how did you make that mm -hmm. transition? Yeah. And I think that that can be pretty scary knowing that you're signing up for a for a temporary job in my experience um your time in government is highly valued by other organizations and when i when i when i went uh, on the job hunt um i really felt like i could credibly um market myself um as someone who was up to speed on different portfolios so i did interview um with like 
you know, on the, on the considered jobs in um, uh, comps roles, obviously, but considered jobs uh, for, for like hospitals, um, for a major climate change organization, um, you're, because you're, you really have a good thorough understanding of of all the portfolios, right? Um, indigenous issues, the economy, like you're you're in um, you're on top of your game. Um, so I really felt um, confident, you know, looking for looking for a new role. So I really felt like I could take what I had learned um, and had like a really broad understanding um, of where the uh, where the where the province uh, was at, which was really helpful in my role at RBC, which was in the um, economics and thought leadership um, department. So they also took a very broad view of the economy, um, and I ended up working on um, reports about indigenous issues, reports about um, uh, the, you know, the, the new economy, um, how the economy was changing, um, women's um, participation in the workforce. And I really felt like I had that, the government had given me that broad perspective um, to bring to, to a new role. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, since then, you've now started your own communications firm, um, yeah. which is something I highly recommend to everyone. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to get to work for yourself um, and bring all this knowledge that you have from government and, and you know, on your side, the, the private sector as well. Um, like you said, you've done a lot of work to have a finger on the pulse of all these different issues. And it allows you to offer some pretty great advice to, you know, prospective clients. Um, so that's how I'm going to pivot into our final question about giving mm. advice to prospective people in politics, um, especially women, especially young women, you know, given everything that you've done and everything you've learned in politics, what advice would you give to women out there who, you know, maybe want to see it as a stopping point in their career or something yeah. to get more involved in as a volunteer? What advice would you give to them about getting involved and then uh, actually doing the work? Yeah, I would, I would say big thing to understand about um, politics is that it's not just about running for office. Um, you know, like when I was at when I was a student at Liberal McGill, I was like, oh, this is a this is a fun hobby for me, but I don't really see myself running for office. But no, like whatever your talent is, we need it and we can make use of it. <laughs> so <laughs> for me, uh, for me, that ended up being um, comms and writing. Um, but graphic designers, you know, social media strategists, there are you it's we're not just looking for people that have a, you know, a poli-sci major. Um, there right. are, there's so many, so many roles behind the scenes. I highly recommend getting involved, um, both because it's, I mean, it's a really, it's a really exciting place to be. And I found you built a sense of community really quickly um, because you're in this intense environment together and you do need to all be working together. So if that's, you know, if that's something that that appeals to you, um, you know, politics really can become a second home. We would have, uh, do you remember like the quarterly meetings that that we would have in government, um, the, yeah. the all all team meetings? Yes, I would uh, only half jokingly refer to those as church that we were like going to church. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, 
it's not just it's not just a bunch of extroverts you know it's not it's not about getting on stage and making a speech i am not one yeah <laughs> <laughs> you may you may still get asked to knock on doors in a campaign um but uh it's um yeah they're they're really there's there's a lot of different roles um for whatever your particular talent is i i think that's a fantastic note to end on because you know that's that's part of the reason for starting this podcast is i've just I've met so many incredible women and, and, you know, non-women in politics as well, um, mm -hmm. who have done an incredible job in the very varied roles that they've had. And they've all come from different, you know, experiences and backgrounds and educations and things like that. And it's, it's one of the few fields you can get into where everyone's welcome. Um, everyone can contribute in some kind of way and you don't need to have a famous last name or anything like that to be a part of it. And you don't even need to be, you know, a candidate or the front facing things that most people mm -hmm. see in mm -hmm. political life. Um, thanks so much for joining me today, Sonia. Sisters Can Podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Lubowitz. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.